Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy June, everyone. And welcome to episode 112 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. With me, ready to make the best marmalade sandwiches you'll ever eat, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I don't know about that, Patrick. I'm keto and I can't eat bread. So marmalade and marmalade's like all sugar. So I'm kind of out on the marmalade sandwiches, but I am here. Well, that's something to be happy about. Hopefully the discussion won't be keto-free if it needs to be. Whatever. I don't know. Well, this week we decided to visit a film that has become an unexpected hit in 2018, Paddington 2, which is, as of this recording, still sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes out of a staggering 196 review. Now, Aaron, you and I were not necessarily followers of the famed aggregator, but having a perfect score is definitely an indicator that something is going very, very right with this movie. Now, before we get into our main discussion of the film, we thought it'd be kind of fun to talk through its predecessor, Paddington well, just Paddington, I guess, in this case, not Paddington 1, but both of which I had actually not seen until this recording. And I wanted to go ahead and lead off the, this quick discussion. This will be spoiler free just because it's a mini, 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 mini sewed, <laughs> you know, truncated. And I wanted to just say that my initial impression was that this is really a straightforward story that is lots of fun. If I could just sum it up in one sentence, this is a movie that had me smiling from the very beginning. And I think it had a lot to do with the little slapstick that was here and there. My family were big fans of clumsiness because we are a family of clumsy individuals. My wife and I are bad and my son comes by it naturally, unfortunately. So watching movies where this is pretty much taking center stage along with some pretty great writing is always going to be something fun to watch. And I couldn't help but just pause the movie and myself and just kind of reflect on the fact that I was having a very good time. So I really liked it. I liked the the slapstick. I liked the matter of fact approaches to the characters. I mean, nobody even seems surprised that there is a bear speaking English hanging out in a train station. So already you're sort of spinning your disbelief from the very beginning in the introduction of these main characters. I also thought that there was this forgetful but familiar villain that helps us as an audience focus probably more on Paddington and his relationship with the Browns more than anything. So I didn't mind that so much wasn't very exciting to have this kind of villain that you could see in pretty much any kind of children's movie, but having this protagonist and this underlying theme of family was really what drew me into the movie as a whole. And it was really more about a story of someone different helping a family grow closer. And I've seen movies like that. And when they work well, they're incredibly effective. And what about you? What were your thoughts coming to this? Well, you really nailed this one, in my opinion, I would have to agree with everything you say. And what I found was I noticed that there's there's so much similarity in the two films and understandably so, but maybe more so than most series that I see. Uh, these are really very, very much alike. And so many of the same themes that we are going to discuss in depth in Paddington 2 are present in Paddington. I don't want to get too into that. My history with Paddington then goes like this. I didn't watch it when it first came out. It was my daughter's first, I hesitate to use this word, date movie. She had this boyfriend. 
quotes, air quotes, uh, that she was, you know, with when she was, I don't know, in fifth, sixth, seventh grade kind of relationship. And we let them go to a movie together. And this was the one that she went to. And she came back raving about the film. And she told us how great it was back when it was 2014, I think, or 15, something like that. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> it's about a bear, Ashlyn. Come on. You're, you're okay, whatever. Like, that's just a kid's talking. This movie can't be good. And so I put it off. Now, I'd heard good things about Paddington, but I still just couldn't get over the presumptions that I had about what this property would be. So I didn't actually see it, Patrick, until after Paddington 2. And so this year. So this year, yeah. And I think that it retroactively probably made it not quite as good because Paddington 2 stood out so well. It, it definitely elevated what Paddington 2 started in pretty much every single way. But I saw the beginnings of Paddington. I saw it was kind of like an origin story in a sense. And I really enjoyed how it played out. I love getting to meet the Browns. And for me, like I said, it was going back in time. So I'd already known them from Paddington 2, and I got to go back and see how they met Paddington. Like you, what really stuck out the most was just why does no one think anything of this bear, like walking around and talking? He's like completely accepted and brought into their home. And it's not weird because he's a bear. <laughs> it's weird because he's not a member of their family to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's just an another human. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to see the interactions that he has with the world around him. One thing that I really like also is just that whimsical style that it starts off with. The music plays a big role in this film. It's so bouncy and cheerful. It, it really does just make you feel good. We are all about feeling film. And I, I love that we're covering these movies because these movies epitomize what you and I go to the movies for not just one emotion, but to feel an emotion. And these do make us feel the emotions that they're trying to feel or trying to evoke very strongly in a, in a, in an excellent way. One scene in particular that I wanted to just briefly mention is that there is a level of detail in this picture that will carry on into Paddington two that separates this from kids movies that we're used to. There's a moment where Paddington is in Paddington station. Love how he gets his name. By the way, we talked about how solo got his name last week in that episode. And wow. it was fun to watch this play out and go, Oh, Hey, look, there's Paddington's name. I'm glad it wasn't catch up the bear, by the way. That would uh, thank be goodness. Movie. Right. <laughs> brutal. Right. <laughs> well, there's this, this moment where the Browns are walking by him and Mr. Brown is like, just ignore him, just ignore him. Right. Which is a callback to the way that we all treat kind of homeless people or beggars when we pass them on the street. And Mary's not like that. Mary turns around and she goes to talk to Paddington and for the briefest of seconds, Patrick, milliseconds even, when Paddington stands up and he tips his hat to Mary, there's a sign above his head framed that says lost and found. And up until this point, lost is highlighted or lit up. And the word found is the lights are out. It's darkness. But the moment that he meets her and she bends down to talk to him, it flickers and then boom, the word found lights up. That to yeah, me, that. that is Paddington. Okay. Like I, some people may think I'm crazy to kind of shoehorn it into that moment, but I feel like it so perfectly captures what 
Paul King and company were trying to create and do with this film. It's not just a kid's movie. It's everything about a kid's movie, but made for adults as well. So I absolutely love it. So yeah, man, that big aspect of this film combined with, I really enjoy the opening where the Explorer is meeting Paddington and going through the jungle. This film uses a really cool mixture of black and white and squared off aspect ratio, almost like you're looking at old Polaroid photos or old home movies anytime that it's utilizing the past. So it's just a very well-made movie and boy, does it make me smile. Yeah, it's a, it's a well-told story, simple, direct, and it focuses on what I think is probably some of the best stuff of the movie, which is character development, and animation. It's probably some of the best animation that we've seen in terms of working in live action with animation. I found myself just suspending my whole disbelief. Not only that there was a talking bear in a train station, and as my son pointed out that he was naked, but also the fact that he was animated talking to live action characters. So I think that speaks wonders and a lot of, you know, just a lot of kudos to the, to the animators and creative team for bringing that out. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you can see them out of order. It doesn't really change your movie experience, but I I personally decided to watch the first one first before watching the second one, because I wanted to get that sequential storytelling. Obviously we both have experienced both of them. So see them in order in which you wish, but please see them both because they're both really good. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. Anything else before we get to the big review? Yeah, if you don't mind, I wanted to just point out a couple of films that released this week, actually, that I think are worthy of going to get seen. And we are entering a time where there are a ton of kind of big name blockbusters and also indies that are going to be rolling out in the theaters here in June. And so I want to make sure that when these smaller pictures or, you know, they're really good, but they're not Jurassic World come out, that people know they exist. The first one is Adrift. This is a survival romance story similar to something like The Mountain Between Us from last year. It stars Shailene Woodley and Finnick from The Hunger Games, also known as Sam Claflin. He's actually a really fantastic actor. But essentially, it tells their story. These two sailors, uh, well, he's a sailor, and she kind of comes along for the ride. They go out to sea, and bad things happen. And it's kind of like All is Lost, where they float around for 40-plus days Uh, And in a hurricane, their boat capsizes. The way this story plays out, though, is very interesting. The structure bounces back and forth. So it starts off in the middle of the film with the boat capsized right after the storm. And then it starts simultaneously working its way through the two meeting and how they progress in their relationship. At the same time, it's bouncing back and forth with them trying to recover from the storm out at sea. So it's really interesting. And I think it makes it watchable because it's not a story we haven't seen before. It's really nothing groundbreaking. Honestly, if it wasn't a true story, probably wouldn't even need to have a movie made about it. But because of the way that it utilizes this back and forth effect, it turns out a lot better than I expected. Also Shailene Woodley, who I adore anyway, gives what I also consider to be an Oscar-worthy performance, really. I think she's going to be in the conversation at the end of the year, or she should be. It's really, really fantastic. She brings out a ton of emotion, and she has to go through a huge range of different feelings over the course of this very tight 90-minute 
picture. So it's worth seeing. It's not the best, but it's a really, really solid movie. The other one is a film called Upgrade. This one didn't screen for critics. It's another A24 movie, so I am pretty well attuned to thinking that, hey, this should be good. It's made by Lee Wannell, who I'm hot and cold on. This is the writer of the Saw franchise, frequent collaborator with James Wan. He's also worked on the Insidious films and directed Insidious 3, I believe it was, The Last Key, the one that came out early this year. Not my favorite in the series. Not really in love with that picture. And so I was a little concerned that he could be a good director and not just a good writer. But boy, did he surprise Patrick. This movie is bonkers. I didn't watch any trailers going into it. I know some people did and said that they weren't really sold on it by the trailers. You don't need to watch a trailer. Just listen to the words I'm about to say and then go watch the movie. Or don't even listen to me. Just pause and go watch the movie. It's really something to behold. It's like RoboCop for 2018 in a lot of ways. It's got this mixture of sci-fi and fantasy and action concepts going on that make it kind of a mismatch of a whole bunch of different things you may have seen before, but put together in a way that is, it's very violent, but it is super high energy, well acted and incredibly choreographed when it comes to the action fight sequences. It's just really fresh, really unique and it's super low budget but it deserves to be seen, man. I, it was got to be one of the, the most surprising viewings of my year so far because I didn't know anything about it, and I got to go in and just be kind of blown away as a, an audience member. So upgrade, definitely worth seeing. Very cool, man. And um, if you get a chance to get out, guys, please go see these two. I've heard nothing but good things, not just from Aaron, but from other people as well. I'm excited to see Upgrade. That that makes me happy to to hear that for sure. Yeah, I think you're going to like that one. A couple quick announcements before we jump into Paddington 2. Just want to remind listeners that June donor pick episode voting is happening right now. It will be going on through June the 10th. You can get votes by going to patreon.com slash film and become a supporter of the show. For as little as a dollar, you get one vote, and you can participate. You can help pick that monthly episode that we cover. Now, this month, we are doing racing movies because we're racing into summer. I don't care if you think that's a bad pun. We like it, so deal. Could be one of what we want to talk about movies having to do with racing. Just, <laughs> we, just, we, let's be honest. Let's be honest. We, had some, we had some movies in our list, and we were like, hmm, how do these tie together? Oh, they could vaguely be, be racing movies. Let's use that. So we worked backwards <laughs> on figuring out the theme, but whatever. Just go vote. I think it's uh, Rush, The Fast and the Furious, first one, Days of Thunder, Secretariat, and The Cannonball Run. So really some good options, and voting so far has been pretty scattered, so your vote could count. So again, patreon.com slash film. We're grateful for any of your dollars you want to send our way. It does go a long way toward helping relieve our costs, keep the show going, help keeps production uh, up and such and so forth. Lastly, if you like podcasts, check out some of our sister podcasts because these all are great. They're amazing. They have wonderful hosts. I recently guest appeared on this show that you're about to hear about called In Session Film. I was on an episode with JD talking about an indie movie that I absolutely love from this year called The Writer. 
give them a listen. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, <laughs> sir. All right. With that being said, we're going to drop right into our spoilery discussion. So as we mentioned before, go see at least Paddington 2 before you come back and listen to us, but go see both if you can. All right, Aaron, why don't we kick off the conversation by you giving us your one word takeaway for Paddington 2? Oh, I would be happy to, Patrick. So my immediate feeling coming out of this film, the first time I saw it, has not changed in two subsequent viewings now, and that is delightful. There was a myriad of adjectives that I could have used, but they all mean delightful. They all mean charming, sweet. It all relates to the experience that I feel, that change of emotion within me when I walked out of this movie. I saw this with zero expectations, like I mentioned earlier, not having seen the first film. I really expected middling kid movie fare, despite what I'd heard. But what I got was not only a wonderful family story full of great advice, hearty laughs, and beautiful animation, but it also has a technical expertise that really caught my critical eye. So I came away shocked, honestly, at how much I was smiling. Seeing this film, it feels like a warm bear hug to me every single time I've watched it. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way, man. And it surprises me and not for any negative vantage point of the movie itself, but it surprises me that it, that it is still so high on your list. And the thing that I pulled away from it, I think sort of ties into what you were saying, because being delightful involves being optimistic. And I think that's the word that really sums up what this particular entry into, I guess it's now a Paddington franchise. I guess when you have two, maybe that is the start of a franchise. But I think what appeals to me as an audience member is summed up in what Aunt Lucy says and her words of wisdom that are repeated several times, I think, throughout both films. It's, if we're kind and polite, the world will be right. And that sounds so hokey and cheesy, but there's so much truth embedded in that. And this movie invites us to see the best in people. And, and Paddington is this agent of that perspective. His influence and how he sees the world is infectious, and it inspires us to want to be better to see people and our situations and opportunities to quote, be right. So I look at a movie like this and I feel like it's hit a nerve with a lot of people because there is just a lot going on in the world. And I feel like Paddington two started 2018 off in a way that felt very optimistic. And I think that's a good thing for us as people. Now, one of the first things I wanted to ask in order to get us into the discussion was Going back to that surprising response early in the year, as you got to see the the screening and were really championing this, it it surprised me. And I wanted to know specifically, because we weren't covering it at the time, I'm glad we are now, but why? 
What is it about Paddington 2? What is it about the sequel that has rivaled, I would say, dozens of other movies that you've already seen through your SIF coverage and through just other means of, of viewing 2018 films? Why is this staying at the top of your list? Well, I think I'm 62 new films of 2018 deep now. Okay, and so it's, it's definitely doing something, right? Right, absolutely. The short answer is that it makes me happy. And that sounds really simplistic, but in context, I would say, I guess not a lot of movies do these days. And if I look back at my favorite films over the past many years, they usually consist of smart sci-fi movies, ones that make me think, or incredibly artsy indie movies that have an exceptional level of craft to them, or even the big blockbusters that are just super fun and engaging. But this is a sweet family comedy, and it's a genre that I mostly don't care for, to be honest. I go to kids' movies with my kids because they're kids and they drag me to them. I like a, quite a few of them, but they're passing experiences in one ear, out the other. They're gone. They're out of my mind, out of my life forever. But I really adore this one with all my heart because it makes me smile so much. And it made me think of Solo because I felt like this is a wonderful film that an entire family can enjoy together. And that means an awful lot to me. When it comes to the craft of this film, though, specifically, the reason that I love it so much is because two of my favorite things about Wes Anderson films, and I'm going to compare at this point, are his use of bright color. He creates this atmosphere of whimsy, and he also has an incredible addiction to symmetry. Now, I am an organized person by nature. I like things in their box and in their place, so I love symmetry. I love the fact that if I have a tattoo on my left wrist, I need to have a matching tattoo on my right wrist or it doesn't feel right to me. Things just aren't in their proper alignment without that. And Wes Anderson does that. When I was watching this film, Patrick, I thought of Wes Anderson constantly. In fact, for a long time, I thought maybe it was directed by him because of how similar it looks aesthetically to his films. And so not only was I getting that emotional pleasure from the charm and the sweetness of it, but I was being constantly captivated by the art, the technical style. I just wanted to screenshot every single scene in this movie and make it my background wallpaper. It's a technical marvel. It really is. And so I think in addition to being a sweet, funny, well-written story, that's what makes it rank so high. Or maybe I just like bear films because Annihilation is right there with it in contention for number one. And yeah, maybe I just like bears this year. Maybe so. Although mentioning Annihilation, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, the two types of films that apparently you gravitate towards are cerebral sci-fi and now these, these feel good films. And I was going to say that I think there's something psychologically captivating about bright colors and Wes Anderson specifically. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Wes Anderson is someone, have you recently with your venture into his filmography, have you recently gotten into him? Like he's not one that you've necessarily followed for years. Is it? No, this 
belief that this movie was made by Wes Anderson. When I walked out of it, I had to go figure out it was not made by Wes Anderson. It's okay. what triggered me actually diving into Wes Anderson's filmography, and I ended up watching his entire catalog of movies in a course of about right. two months between this and Isle of Dogs being released. Okay. So in that regard, it was sort of inspiration for your Wes Anderson adventure. Very much so. And I get that when I, when I watch Paddington two, I get those same kinds of vibes, that vibrant color and psychologically it inhibits, not inhibits, excuse me. It exhibits and invites us to feel good about things. In fact, I noticed that watching both of these films together, the moments when we're we're supposed to feel sad or feel some kind of angst, there's a more muted color palette, not very muted because by default Paddington is a bright colored story. Even going back to the original books, it's very much about your, your browns and your reds and your blues and things like that. Very, very calming color palette. So to see it enacted on the big screen, we get that sense of, of optimism. We get that sense of cheerfulness. And one of the stronger themes that comes out because of those elements is this idea of neighborliness. Now, one of the cool things that I thought paid itself off really well was Near the beginning of the film, we get an established Paddington life. So the first film sets us up with him and the Browns, and the second film begins not really where the first one left off, but really just kind of established, hey, it's been a couple of years. He's been living with them. He's basically another member of the family. And we kind of see his daily routine play itself out. We see him, um, I guess, hitch a bike ride with one of the couriers and she's expecting a, a pastry or some of some kind of marmalade sandwich of some kind. Um, he, you see that he's always, he's always making a point to tell his neighbor, Hey, don't forget to lock, you know, don't, don't lock yourself out of your house. And we see that payoff later in that when he's not there, people feel bad. The biker, feels bad because she doesn't have her breakfast. So she's, she's hangry <laughs> and the neighbor locks himself out of his house and all these different things just sort of kind of come into chaos because Paddington is not there. And one of the big themes of the movie is this idea of neighborliness and living in a community. And I wanted to ask you from your perspective, what does Paddington two really expand on with this idea of neighborliness? Well, that scene that you mentioned is probably one of my top maybe five scenes in the entire film. I adore it too, just like you were talking about. And for those very reasons, it's so cool, Patrick, to see this bear that we just talked about, how in Paddington 1, it's kind of shocking like how they just accept him normally and they treat him like he's a human. And it, here he is like just like a part of the neighborhood. He's an everyday contributor and he is someone that they rely on just as you might think of, you know, your mailman that you see every day come along the street. Well, we see Paddington every morning, just bringing cheer to the to the neighborhood. And that was, that's kind of what I got out of it was he was this presence of joy in their lives and he helped bring it together he was a glue maybe he was a marmalade i guess because that's sticky <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you said he was delivering sandwiches to, to one point um it really does remind me of a couple things one is i recently saw a documentary that's coming out this year 
that everybody is going to need to see called Won't You Be My Neighbor about hashtag jealous. Yes. Fred Rogers. I want to see it. You know, and he is a similar character caricature or character to Paddington. They have the same kind of mindset, right? Is just be good to people. Everybody should be nice to each other (laughs) and it should be a safe place. And we should care about one another's lives and we should always want the best for each other. And so I felt that there's a strong parallel between those two and that Paddington's really like kind of like a bare version of Mr. Rogers. And then what really nailed home this whole idea of neighborliness to me, and I'll be frank, I didn't connect these dots until I had read your note about neighborliness and it made me tune into it when I was seeing the film in a subsequent viewing. And so this scene almost was my connecting point. It stuck out like a sore thumb. It's at the end when the neighbors all come back after Paddington, the adventure has been, has gone, gone and been completed and they're standing there and they tell him all the ways that he positively influenced their lives. And so they're recounting to him why he matters And then they discuss how they use their resources to do the same for him, to bring Aunt Lucy to visit, which is fulfilling his heart's biggest desire. And yet his heart's biggest desire was still to do something for someone else, which is give Aunt Lucy a present, give her a gift, have her receive something that she has not been able to so far. And this full circle, I guess, of this idea of neighborliness that Paddington is doing these things unprovoked. He's not doing them for himself. He's not doing them for accolades or to win anything. He simply is doing them because he believes it's right. And it comes back. It comes back to reward him in the end. It does. But even if it didn't, I mean, what's interesting is he didn't know that she was visiting at that point. And he continued to do what he did out of this idea of goodness, this intrinsic goodness that exists in him. And where I think the film challenges us is that there's, I was reading a little bit of research on the first film and some themes of being an immigrant and being different and kind of being accepted to a family, despite where you come from and who you are. And that's definitely something that's apparent in the character of Paddington. So this film challenges that by saying, look, he's not a bear. You mentioned earlier that he's basically another member of the family and we don't see him that way. We don't see him being a bear in this film. We see him being Paddington who just happens to be a bear. Whereas in the first one, I think he's introducing himself to Mr. Brown with his bear name, which I think is hysterical in the way that Mr. Brown tries to repeat it back. And he goes, how rude, Mr. Brown. That's, that's very inappropriate. So the second film is really about that neighborliness, about that goodness that's in him. And what that reminds me of is it reminds me that who a person is, is not necessarily defined by what they look like and where they come from. These are definitely socially sound ideas, things that we could create or use as a metaphor. And I believe Paddington is using this as sort of a meta as a metaphor for maybe a a statement about the world around us, but in a very gentle way, in a very subtle way, in a very approachable way. But that idea of intrinsic goodness that 
Paddington is not compelled by anything other than the fact that it's just what's in him. It makes me wonder, is this idea real or is this just played for show for the big screen? And what I mean by that is, is there a faith or is there something that we can believe in with regards to other people with regards to this intrinsic goodness? Can we believe that people around us, people in our lives, people that exist are doing things just for the sake of knowing that it's a better thing for the world and not looking for accolades? I mean, does that challenge you? Well, it's, I, yeah, I don't think (laughs) here's the thing. We can believe that, yes, and we would be wrong, and we would we would find ourselves often to be disappointed. Okay. But I don't think that that should stop us from believing that. So, so the question I, I guess I'm really asking is: Is Paddington Two giving us an unrealistic expectation about people? That's a people? great question. That is a great. Yeah, question. That, that's kind of what I was getting at. Sorry, is is okay. that realistic to think I, that? Or I think, yeah, maybe to some extent. If okay. It is a movie, and. You know, he puts his faith in the prisoners and this is a point where the movie, it doesn't really address this full on because it's using kind of comedic tones to get at how the prisoners come together as a group. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. It's funny and it's sweet. And it makes you think, you know, that yes, people do may have a commonality that they're not even aware of. In this case, it was a lot of them had recipes and cooking and things like this. And it brings them together as a makeshift family that otherwise they might not have realized, but yeah, that's not a realistic scenario. You shouldn't walk into your prison cell. If you're listening to us and you're in prison and don't do this. Okay. Uh, or keep <laughs> this in your mind in case you ever go to prison, this is going off the rails. Uh, let's just say, <laughs> Any example where you're walking into an area and you need to get together with people and become closer, don't always expect that they're just going to be happy and acquiesce to your good-hearted nature. I think that that is definitely unrealistic. And at times, Patrick, that can also be dangerous. Yes, There's a level of self-awareness that needs to come with dealing with people at any level, and especially with strangers. In mm-hmm. which case, Paddington is always all about, like, I'm just going to be nice and everything will be fine. So, yeah, there's a little bit of an innocence to this that I don't think is realistic. But I think I at the heart of it is very a, a very important lesson mm-hmm. that we can live our lives with that mindset. And when you add in a little bit of self-awareness to that and you add in being a little bit careful, a little bit picky, then it's a better way to live your life. And you're going to be happier for it. And the people you touch and you influence, that circle is going to be wider than if you don't live like this or like Paddington. For sure. And Paddington represents the childlike person in us. And that idea of, you could call it being naive. And that's a very true statement. Paddington is definitely naive. And if it hadn't been for a tasty marmalade sandwich, he probably would have been pounded to death by knuckles. So the fact is there are coincidences and there are circumstances that help dictate where his story goes and some feel more accidental than others. But I think Paddington as a, as a movie represents symbolism 
of optimism or an allegory in optimism in that we can't look, we we're watching a bear <laughs> live this life. So already we have to suspend our disbelief. And so as responsible audience members, we have to basically realize that not everything in here is necessarily a biopic of a bear's life. <laughs> it is a, <laughs> it, is, it is an entertaining story first and foremost. I mean, that that's the true statement. I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine this morning that, Every movie we watch is meant to entertain primarily. Look, I love getting messages, not messages like I'm an alien or whatever. I'm, I love getting lessons from this as Don would or, you know, pull from, from movies. I love getting theological truth from movies like those guys, like our guys at, at Popcorn Theology do. But the fact is we go to movies to be entertained, to laugh, to cry, to get mad, to get pumped about something. And that's what we have to go into Paddington with that same mindset, not to necessarily learn a lesson. Those are secondary, not to necessarily learn some kind of truth. That's secondary. First and foremost, this should be an entertaining thing. And so there is the argument to be made that Paddington too represents a sense of escapism for an audience. I mean, look, the world we live in right now and all of its chaos and all the problems and everything, Paddington too is ripe for an audience to come in and say, look, I want to give up an hour and a half of my life and just live in this world of high contrasting color, happy, gentle, fuzzy bear, not fuzzy bear, fuzzy bear, um, love and tenderness and whatever you can do to sum up Paddington in, in, in whatever way you can. But the fact is, I, I think Paddington too can offer more than an escape for an audience. And I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that I think that there's a reason why it sits so high with critics because they're finding more than just, Hey, this was a great way to escape my life for an hour and a half. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. And I think it boils down to a lot of aunt Lucy's lessons and aunt Lucy's lines that she has taught Paddington when he was a young cub those ones like if we are kind and polite, the world will be all right. Or if you look for the good in people, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. These are the things that we can take away from the movie and we can apply them to our everyday lives. Even if we don't expect that magically it's going to change the way everyone around us works. It can change our heart and it can change our own approach. And I think that has to be the focus It's not, how it's going to, what it's going to do to someone else, but how it's going to change my own day-to-day -day approach to interacting with the world around me. And I feel happier after I walk out of Paddington. I'm more likely to nod and smile and be friendly to the ticket taker when I pass them on my way out of the theater. Versus ignoring the person and just pretending that they don't exist. I'm being very blunt here. That's what we do. That's how we live our lives. There's so many people. This this world is crazy populated. Have you ever have you ever stopped and like thought about that when you're just watching people walk by on the street? Like every single one of hundreds of people just walking by within about a couple minutes. Every single one of them has a unique life. They're all going somewhere. They're all coming from somewhere. They all have this spider web of relationships for themselves. Who knows what they're thinking about? Maybe they're thinking about you. It's crazy. It's really crazy. And so 
we get in our bubbles and we only deal with us. We pretend that these millions of other people around us don't exist. And Paddington, for me, makes me notice them more. Mm -hmm. Paddington, I think, does something that I need to be reminded of constantly. And that's that regardless of whether I think this is true or not, I have influence in every aspect of my life, in my marriage, in my relationship with my son, at work, with my coworkers, with people that I am connected with at our local church, our small group, I have influence. And that's not necessarily an egotistical statement to make because we all do. A year ago, a year and a half ago, you and I, we started this podcast and we were just talking through movies that we could get our hands on. And sometimes it was easier to grab movies that we already had and talk through those because it was cheaper. And then you got press credentialed. And now you are part of the Film Critics Society in Seattle. Your influence is growing and more people are listening to and reading what you have to say as a film critic because you've earned that kind of respect. And so you have that influence. And the conversations that we have offline remind me that you take that seriously, that it's not about necessarily getting more people to read what you are writing, although that's good because why write if nobody's going to read exactly. And at the same time, you're also wanting to make sure that the things you're saying have an impact on people. Like that maybe what you're writing about with regards to the latest film, you want people to understand about expectations and for me, I have those same kinds of things in different pockets of my life. And what Paddington does is it reminds me that regardless of if I want to or not, I do have influence and I need to take advantage of that influence. So if I walk out of my house and I see somebody who is struggling to carry their garbage can to the street, maybe that's my opportunity to go out there and help them. Or if I'm at work and somebody's struggling with some kind of coding issue or design issue, maybe I go over there and I say, hey, what can I help you with there? And Paddington, I think what can probably be seen as maybe frustrating or maybe a little bit, I won't say godlike, but a little bit supernatural is that he seems to do this without any kind of effort. And the fact is, I think if you were to sit down and interview him, which I think would be kind of interesting is he would say, look, it's just the way I was raised. It's just the way that it's what I've known all my life. Mm -hmm. I would love for that to be the answer that my son gives when asked how he is the way he is. Well, it's just how I grew up. Now, hopefully that won't be coming from <laughs> A judge asking him, why did you do what you did? Why did you commit that crime? I hope it's something more on the positive side. But the fact is, Paddington reminds us that we do impact people. And it may be on a local level. It may be on an international level. It may be in some way, shape, or form. But we have to know that we take that responsibility. And we need to take that responsibility seriously because we do have an influence. And it affects people positively and negatively. And I think you and I are both in the same boat and we're like, We'd like to be positive. And I think most people would think that way too. Um, but I think where Paddington maybe differs from us is he feel, I feel like he does it from a, a non selfish way. Like in the back of our heads, we're probably thinking, Hey, it'd be nice to get more readers. It'd be nice to get more listeners uh, when it comes to the, a show like this. But I, I think intrinsically, I think there's something inside all of us where we want to have that kind of influence. It's interesting. It's interesting you say that. And I, I would agree to some extent. Mm-hmm. I think Paddington shows us a nurture over nature okay. relationship as well, because he 
is unlike the rest of the bears. This is not something that is that comes normal to other bears, obviously, but or to the browns and to humans. And what I see is I see the way that Aunt Lucy has raised Paddington, has nurtured him into becoming who he is, and that he is then paying that forward. And in a sense, he's nurturing the Browns. He's nurturing the neighborhood around him. He's nurturing the prison. Everywhere he goes, he is nurturing them and helping to get them beyond what is their nature. Uh, So I, I really enjoy that. And he's just, it's so fun to watch him in re- interact. Uh, I mean, that's the the cool part about this is we can discuss this and how it makes us feel and how it, these great lessons and these things that are very important that almost are unnoticeable. That's what's brilliant about this film to me is that my child can watch this and not even realize that that's what they're taking away from it. But it's kind of subtly getting in there. Okay. That happens a lot with movies in a negative way. This one does it in a positive way. Oh, agreement. Yeah. And it's, I think that's what can be somewhat pessimistic to an audience who it feels like it's sugarcoating something when the fact is there's truth in positivity too. I think we're just inundated with negativity, with the way the world is kind of operating right now that while I think it feels like a breath of fresh air to have something like this, that's somewhat positive and optimistic, but it's also something that we kind of hesitate to embrace because we feel like it's not truthful because it's not pessimistic or negative or quote real. And I think that Paddington invites us to kind of cut loose a little bit, let that go and embrace what could be a really important truth wrapped up in a wonderfully told story. And it ha- it helps when you have Hugh Grant giving what I, I truly believe is one of the best performances of his career. Now, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I walked out of this movie and I said, this man can win a best supporting actor Oscar for this performance. And I (laughs) knew people were going to think I was nuts until you see this movie. You'll think that's crazy to say that. But when you see it, I feel like you understand. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And sure enough, the BAFTAs recognized him. The British awards came and said, Hugh, you're worthy. Right. So I, I'm hoping that the Academy does too. And I was curious what you thought of his performance because I loved it. I mean, I went crazy for it. Both he and Brendan Gleeson are perfect in these roles. I mean, they are the perfect mm-hmm. casting choices. I, they, I can't think of any way it could have been better. He is great. And it was a nice breath of fresh air to have a villain that feels different than the first film, but in general, where a villain feels somewhat well, we talked about this where a villain feels a little bit more rounded where we kind of have sympathy for for him in some way but he's incredibly entertaining he's incredibly charismatic he's fun to watch he's not someone who we feel like is just like oh he's there to be a means to an end for padding to get from point a to point b like he has a real motive he has a real ambition and there's just like this little subplot that exists in the movie that's very very entertaining i love when he says prison is no laughing matter i should know i spent three years in les mis <laughs> as so someone great, whose man. favorite musical of all time is Les Mis I just died over that so it, way, mo- has, way more than I probably should have 
and that has no influence on your opinion of Hugh, uh, of, of Hugh Grant in this. No, and it's funny you just kind of flubbed there because I've called him Hugh Jackman a million times. We just talk about Hugh Jackman so much that it just rolls off the tongue. At I least know. we're not confusing him with Hugh Hefner. That would be worse. But yeah. <laughs> these are bears, not bunnies. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's going south too. So, But yeah, I really loved Hugh Grant's performance in this, man. He... He does make it for me. He makes it. He makes this film special. Whereas in the first one, Nicole Kidman, I remember when she shows up, I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's Nicole Kidman. She's going to be the villain in this movie. And though she gives us a really cool Mission Impossible throwback moment where she comes down out of the ceiling and, you know, she, like you said, she's serviceable. There's nothing iconic about that performance. Whereas this one is very, very memorable. Yeah, I'm really glad that, that Hugh Grant is a villain was the way he was. And it wasn't that Nicole Kim was necessarily bad. It was just that she left me wanting more. She felt very predictable. And we knew that she was going to get her demise in some way, shape or form. And uh, Hugh Grant's performance was a lot more unpredictable. I mean, we knew he was, Paddington was going to win in the end, but you know, alas, it was good to see how Hugh Grant played out through that. And speaking of the original, something that I was thinking about as I was watching these movies and something we talked about just as the podcast started was having both of these in, uh, in our brains, <laughs> watching one first and then the other, I got to thinking about how, when we talked about doing this episode, we knew we weren't going to cover the first one, at least not in depth. And so I had actually thought about, well, I'll just skip it. You know, there's no reason to see the first one because apparently the second one doesn't really connect to the first one, but I wanted to ask, how does seeing the original, whether first or second, how does it influence your enjoyment of the the second movie? Because you had a chance to see the second one first and then go back and watch the first. And then I guess see the second one again for the podcast. So for you, how did that shape your opinion? I mean, obviously it didn't make it any worse, but did it change anything for you perspective wise? No, it made me appreciate Paddington 2 more because I felt like Paddington did a lot of unique things. I mentioned earlier the aspect ratio use and every time that it's in the past, it shifts to that square format like a Polaroid or old film. And that continues. So all of these things that were started in Paddington, I feel like got done even better in Paddington 2. The use of the score and the sound editing is also kind of mixed in where if there's a beat in the music, it might correspond to a knock on something in the actual film of what you see on screen. And the other tie-ins are kind of fun for me. Honestly, there's a moment that stuck out to me that I laughed a lot about in Paddington two, where a security guard is talking about seeing Hugh Grant's character, Phoenix, come through the museum. And he says, an unusually attractive man. Stop that stunning sister. Most beautiful woman I've seen in a long time. And when I was watching Paddington, there's a moment where this security guard is talking to Mr. Brown, who's trying to infiltrate an office building of some sort or a museum. And he says the same thing. He's in drag, Mr. Brown is. And this, this character mentions that he's unusually attractive as well. And I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. Is that intentional? 
And sure enough, that is Simon Farnaby playing both of those security guards. Simon Farnaby actually wrote or co-wrote Paddington 2. So it's a fun little connecting nod, but seeing things like that bring those films together for me in a way that makes them both more enjoyable. I know that seems almost silly, but it reminds me of the Star Wars nods and the use of nostalgia that enhances our viewing. And what I think Paddington does so well is it's not overly done. They're very few and far between, but things like that do make it better for me. And when it comes to the story, I like the fact that you get Paddington's backstory of Aunt Lucy and Uncle uh, Gustavo. Is it Gustavo? Gustavo. Um, and how he he passes away. I remember going, oh, like, out loud. I was like, ooh, did that just happen? Did that bear just die on the screen? <laughs> oh my gosh, right? That was shocking to me. And so you kind of get a little bit more of an understanding of who Paddington is. And the depth of emotion grows over the course of the film. And he's much younger in Paddington 1. And in Paddington 2, he's more of an adultish bear. And so when he's crying, I feel like there's more value in his pain because of what he's experienced. He's experienced living with the Browns. And so now feeling like they're gone is a much bigger deal than it would be in Paddington 1 because he's got this history with them. So I think that the movies very much go well together and your enjoyment of Paddington 2 can be enhanced by it. But I think the brilliance ultimate brilliance of this film is that it can also be taken by itself. It's very rare that a movie can stand on its own without its previous films in this day and age. That's for sure. This one can. I agree. And the thing that I liked more about having seen the first installment before the second is I was given that comfort level of the type of comedy and the type of story that was going to be given to me because Paddington too, you mentioned had those same kinds of themes, had that same kind of tone that the first one had. And rightly so. I mean, to have a different take would be preposterous. So I actually found Paddington a lot funnier for my, for my taste, but it wasn't because Paddington too lacked those things. It was because I think Paddington was fresh. Paddington was ah, that's new comedy. Oh, I'm laughing. at Oh, that's funny. The, the whole, one of my favorite scenes is the whole bit in the, in the diner, in the, the, I guess it's the, the train station diner where he's talking to Mr. Brown and trying to help him understand what his name is. And he's stuffing his face with all these things. And my son, of course, is laughing at all this because we're a family of slapstick lovers. So having him just stuff his face and talking with his mouth full. is just really funny. But that kind of comedy is echoed in the second installment, just in different ways. And so it was still funny, but it was a comfortable level of funny. Like, ah, yeah, I remember that. Oh, that's a fun thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm used to that kind of, that kind of comedy now. So in a lot of ways, Paddington two probably would have been more enjoyable for me had I seen it first, because that comedy would have been fresh at that point. Again, it didn't take away anything of my enjoyment from the film. So in that regard, I was glad to get that origin story. As you mentioned earlier, I was glad to get the smaller theme of influence where Paddington has on bringing this family of, of, uh, of three or four, I guess, together. 
And now we see his influence spread beyond that with their support, which I think is a nice step in progress when it comes to the the world of Paddington. So if there's a third installment, I, I don't know what to expect from that, but I anticipate that it would be equally as funny and just as charming. Yeah, I would agree. The other thing I really love about this film is the post-credits scene. It's probably <laughs> the yes. best one I have seen in years, both the actual during the credits where it's got this witty headlines that are kind of being shown through newspaper clippings and other things. But then ultimately the Hugh Grant song and dance number. I, I just, I can't get enough of that. It's incredible to me. The thing culminates with him rising up to this sign of his name that says Phoenix. And it just reminds me, you know, he's a Phoenix rising from the ashes. He's being reborn in this role. He's found his calling with this, what he calls a captive audience. It's, Wonderful. I could have watched an entire film of the musical number that is shown at the end of this movie. It's that good. It really is. And it just goes to really reiterate the care and the thought that goes into every aspect of this movie, which I think for you and me is a huge, huge bonus when we see the creativity behind that. Pixar is a great example of a company full of storytellers that take great care at even the most minute details. I mean, you mentioned earlier the little nod to the lost and found sign and how subtle that was, but how it meant so much. And you may not catch that initially, but when you do catch it, it means a ton because of what you're seeing played out onto the screen. And having a post credit scene like that was just icing on the cake, entertaining and at the same time, a, a nice reminder of just the, the love that goes into a movie like this. Well, let's move into our connecting points. I will go ahead and kick us off if that's cool. And for me, I think the the big scene that came out in, uh, and there were several that stood out, but the thing that really came around for me was the transformation of the prison montage. Now, I'm a sucker for montages. I love I love training montages. I love when things go from like ugly to clean. So the whole spoonful of sugar from Mary Poppins. I'm like, yes, that's great stuff. And there was a quote that I found on the web as I was researching this. And it says, it's describing the scene. It says, it's silly, of course, and it's hardly social realism, but it's also a genuine expression of the power that beauty and kindness can have even in the darkest places. Now, I mentioned before that Paddington sort of feels like an allegory, kind of feels like an analogy, like a like a symbolic representation of an idea that's being told. And this whole sequence, I think, epitomizes what I think makes the movie worth watching. And it's that Paddington isn't motivated to survive, although there is definitely trepidation that he expresses. I mean, we see that in this wonderful mo-capped, I'm assuming, facial expressions of this character. But rather, I think he sees something that's wrong and he wants to find a way to fix it. And at the very least, the sequence and the movie as a whole really serves as sort of a metaphor that seeing the best in people, seeing what they can bring to the table, that can figuratively and in some ways literally change the situation around us. It reminds us that we need stories like Paddington to help us understand that the world can be a good place and that even the small little adjustments that we make as individuals can make big, uh, big changes. 
Paddington represents the best in us, even though he's a bear, which I think is kind of crazy to think. But when I see that sequence of the prison changing and really starting with his confrontation with Knuckles, I see the possibilities of things being changed and being able to change for the good. I love the moment when these prisoners stand up and they say, I can make this. I think I can remember this recipe that my mom taught me about this particular thing. And again, it's silliness. They're all coming together to share their recipes, which is probably the most, I don't know, I wouldn't say the non-masculine thing to do, but you wouldn't expect that from prison prisoners to be sharing their, you know, their talents being extended of, of food or, or, or creating something or baking. Cause all these things were like things that you bake. They weren't necessarily like, like meals, but seeing them all bring something to the table and seeing how that changes the environment. Uh, it, it's a wonderful way to, to see how that can be a representation of how we can see the world as a, as a means to, uh, to change it for the better. So I love that. And it's, it's how it, and why I connected with it. Yeah, that's great. And that's also one of the big reasons of where the connection to Wes Anderson comes in in this film, not just the, mm-hmm. it's framed in symmet- symmetrical ways throughout the whole movie, but the prison is so much of a callback to the grand Budapest hotel and scenes that take place in that right down to the uniforms and the colors and everything that it's hard not to immediately think about it when you see this. There's also a really cool song that goes on during that montage called love thy neighbor call back to that uh, whole neighborliness theme. And Perfect. it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, <laughs> well, what about you? Well, mine was also regarding prisoners or linked to a scene with the prisoners. And it's when they are trying to talk Paddington into breaking out with them. Hmm. They feel like he needs them to clear his name. So they know that he relies on their help or they feel that he should be relying on their help. And they tell him that the Browns will forget about him. And it made two things stick out to me. It's a, it's this idea of both viewpoints being equally true while one is ultimately hopeful and one is sadly tragic. The first one is Paddington says no. He tells them that's not what's going to happen. He maintains faith in the Browns. They're going to come see me. They're not going to forget about me. And of course they don't. They don't show up, which he misunderstands, of course. He would have no reason not to. They're out trying to clear his name. But yet he still believes in them. And when they come back, he understands that they were gone because they were trying to prove his innocence. So it's a well-placed faith and hope that he has in his family. And the other side of that that comes out is that the prisoners aren't really lying. That's the world that they know. They know being forgotten by their loved ones, their friends, their families who stop coming to visit That is their reality. So it's not like they're telling him this as a way to dissuade him. They're telling him this because they genuinely believe that is what is going to happen and it is going to cause him pain and it is going to show him that he is going to be alone just like the rest of them. And that's what makes them such a strong community or a neighborhood, if you will, is that they need each other because – That's all they've got. 
And so despite them eventually betraying Paddington briefly, they do realize that he is also part of their family now. And so they come back to help him. And so I, I love that scene because it gives me these two different perspectives of a moment in time where the bear and the prisoners are coming together and they're trying to figure out the best way to proceed. And everybody has the right thoughts, even though they're different. And it, it's just fascinating to me. And it, it really made me connect to it. And it also made me, Patrick, wonder if you had any perspective on that, if I'm missing the mark here, because I know that you did some prison ministry for quite a long time. And is what I'm pulling out of this accurate that they really do feel that way in many cases? You know, there's a sense that is very, very common of having um, institutionalism and being connected based on that common ground. It says a lot about us as human beings, how we want to be connected to each other in some way, shape or form. Uh, the same conversation I was having with my friend this morning was about um, racial unity and how do we find common ground even with cultural differences. And it's an obviously an open-ended conversation. It's constantly something that we're trying to figure out and learn from. And of course our faith is directly tied to that in our conversations. But when it comes to, the life of a, of a prisoner, the, the experience that, that I was able to observe is that the longer you're in a place, the more you rely on the people that are in there with you. Now, there are obviously folks that come in and out. They're only on like maybe six months to a year, maybe a two year stint. And so the amount of time that you spend in the same prison or the amount of time that you have doing time is directly influenced by the level of camaraderie that you have with someone else. And so I, the guys that I knew were living life sentences, they felt the most acclimated obviously to the world of prison life and to those around them that were experiencing that same thing. So they developed a life of camaraderie because they knew their circumstance was not going to change. They knew that there was no way that they were going to leave that institution even if they got moved to another building or another prison completely, they knew that their life was going to be within the walls of the correctional facility. So I think that there's some truth to that. And I don't think it's necessarily pessimism. I think I love the fact that you brought up the fact that these prisoners were not trying to manipulate Paddington. In fact, there's that one moment which almost became my connecting point was when they escaped and they said, we want you to come with us. We want you to come along. To me, that said, you're part of our family and we don't want you to feel left out. And it was very big of him to say, no, this, this isn't the life that I, I wanted. I didn't, this isn't what I wanted to do. And so they could be seen as kind of enemies at that point. But I think it's an honest portrayal. I think it's the fact that while they did use him, they used him as a means to say, we need a better life. We need to get out of here and we want to do something better. It's, it's a weird way to think, but I think it's in the same way. It's the same kind of thinking, just like you mentioned in a different way. So, so yeah, I think having a moment like that of reality is kind of a breath of fresh air in this whole story of kind of fantastical stuff, but it fit perfectly. 
and it challenges us as an audience to say, ah, okay, that's something different, which I think gives Paddington do a little bit more weight than your typical happy, happy movies that come and go. Yep. That it definitely does. Well, man, I've enjoyed this conversation. I know that you have, you were anticipating getting a chance to talk about this and I'm glad that we got to find time in the schedule to fit it in. Uh, thank you guys for listening. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going with me, you can find me on social media. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can find me at both Facebook and Twitter by just typing in that name and you should be able to find me floating around there somewhere. I'm usually hanging out in our Facebook group, dropping the uh, weekly poll question and occasionally chiming in to some of the great conversation that we have there. If you have not joined the Facebook group, please, please do that because that's where really great conversation happens. Not just with me or with Aaron, but with tons of other people. We've got lots of people that are chiming in and bringing great stuff to the table. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you on social media? Well, other than that Facebook group, which is probably the absolute best place, you can also find me always very active on Twitter at Aaron or using the official Feelin' Film Twitter account at Feelin' Film. We are excited next week to be joined by some friends of ours at a podcast called Retro Rewind Podcast, Francisco and Paul. We've done a few different mashups with them previously, and this next one is going to be a lot of fun. Is it okay to announce it, Patrick? Absolutely. Okay, so next week we are going to be covering The Jungle Book, which is the 2016 John Favreau live action retelling of the classic Disney animated film. And then on their podcast, because it is their retro rewind podcast, we're going to cover the older movie with them. So I hope you're excited about that listeners. You'll want to check them both out. They're going to be great. We're really, really excited. It's always a fun time when we talk to these guys, you'll get to see a little bit of a different side of us, both on our own show, because these guys bring a level of humor that, Patrick and I don't normally let out. And then on their show, that same level of humor ratcheted up to a 10 and Patrick and I kind of let loose and act a little different because it's a different format. So hope you'll check them both out. Keep, keep ready for those. And then also coming next week, listen for an interview with myself and Bart Layton, the director of the recently released American animals. That's a great one. It's pretty short and it's definitely well worth listening and spoiler free as well. All right, Aaron. Well, I appreciate all that listeners. If you haven't checked out our past episodes, feel free to do that as well. There's lots of great conversation going on there. In the meantime, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.